It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life, to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello and welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris. A couple of brief housekeeping things before we get started. One, if you have not signed up for the Flock email, please do so. You can go to pineconeturkey.com and fill out the form there. And if you do, you'll receive two emails a month. The first one will contain your minimum monthly dose of art. That's a little short film, some poetry, visual art, and a short story or narrative nonfiction. And the other email you receive will be an update on the podcasts. We are currently hosting two podcasts, the Origin Story podcast, which you're listening to now, and the Owls on Culture podcast, where two generations of owls, me, the dad, and Hank, my son, who's 12, where we talk about different things in the culture, usually Marvel movies. But we're branching out and doing some other things as well. I also want to mention that Pinecone Turkey published 12 Authors, 12 Stories, 2018. That is available at Amazon.com. I asked 11 other writers to write me a short story, and I assigned them a month to inspire them. And then I chose the month of October because I'm selfish and I love it. Uh, That's available lots of places. It's selling really well, and I appreciate all the support on that. It's a really good book. I'm proud of it. And so if you've not picked up a copy, it makes a very cool gift. Uh, make something a little uh, a little different than your normal um, your normal gift. It's certainly better than a candle. Uh, and speaking of twelve authors and twelve stories, submissions are now open for two thousand nineteen version. And this time, all stories will be inspired by the theater. So, if you know a theater lover who's also a writer, uh, please direct them to pinecoandurkey dot com, and uh, all the information is there on how to submit. And that will be released later this year. Okay, on to the podcast. Today's host, uh, no, I'm the host. Today's guest is Mark Sage. Mark is the founder and CEO of Bobo Intriguing Objects. Bobo Intriguing Objects is a wholesale distributor of unique home decor and furnishings focused on a look that naturally separates itself from the rest. It's for the trade only, so they're wholesale. And they have showrooms located in Atlanta and High Point, and they definitely do the Apparel Mart as well. And if you're thinking, hey, I'm not a wholesaler, that doesn't help me. Uh, Well, actually, a couple of times a year, he will open up his warehouse in Atlanta uh, for uh, retail use only. And I've been to that, and I was lucky enough to receive a little tour uh, before we recorded the podcast. And man, it's just a cool place. There is so much neat stuff. Um, you know, his aesthetic, we discuss in the podcast, but it, I, I dig it. You know, I first kind of saw his stuff without even knowing who he was or even knowing that I liked what I liked at Restoration Hardware. He does some pieces for them and in other places as well. So you, you've probably seen his work. Uh, it's really, really pretty amazing. So, But anytime you get a chance to, to go to that warehouse, please do so. You will, you will love it. Um, before he opened up 
uh, Bobo and Drinking Objects, however, he was uh, opening up franchises in Russia and France. And when that company was bought, he began importing antiques. So we discuss how he became an antique dealer. And we talked about throwing raves to support himself while that business was getting going. Uh, we talked about the formation of Bobo and just a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Mark is fun. He is super smart. He's positive. He's a great storyteller. I, I think you will really, really enjoy this. And if you do, uh, please leave a review and rate us on iTunes. That would help us out a lot. Um, without further ado, Mr. Mark Sage. All right, Mark Sage. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. What's going on? Uh, not a lot. Thanks for that cool tour. <laughs> the Bobo World Headquarters. I mean, well, it's kind of badass, to be honest with you, because you got your cool office kind of park complex with, like, your stuff in the little conference room that we're in now and the amazing pinball machines. True and, that. And then we've got thousands and thousands of square feet of, of space with, you know, your warehouse. Right. Things getting ready to be shipped out and also... Uh, cool, like like showroom kind of thing, right? So this it, is kind of like a badass fortress, basically. Yeah, it's uh, it's a mix. There's probably I don't know, hundreds of thousands of antiques and and you know laying around and and just kind of cool, unique stuff everywhere. People come in here and and just really can't believe it. You know, the, the, all the trinkets of the world are laid around here in a hundred thousand square feet. So is there a uh, is there like a plan of like you know like all. I don't know, lamps and lighting things are in one side or is it, is it like, how do you, how you organize that? Well, we usually try to display it as best we could, you know, in, in, in settings that you might see in your store or in your, in your shop. But, um, you know, things move around so quickly here and we sell it quite fast. So things tend to get put together and torn up quite often. I gotcha. Now this is a new space for y'all. Is that right? We've been here for about uh, two and a half years. So, you know, when you're moving, you know, this was when we moved, I think it was 68 containers uh, of product. So um, it still seems like we're just trying to still moving in. How big is uh, a container? What is a container? A container is what you see on the back of a semi truck. Okay. You know, um, uh, that's usually a, a 40 or a 45 or a 53 foot you know, those iron boxes that you see on the back of, of a container. That's how we ship all our products in from various countries, and uh, and they all end up here. I gotcha. And so this is a different office space than when I was doing research. I saw that you were featured in uh, Garden and Gun magazine, which I dig. Correct, uh, yeah. Like yeah. their office kind of thing. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I was, uh, they did, I was working with them in, in kind of a board of directors capacity. I did some work for the Jubilee that they had, a big party that they had, and I and, uh, was doing some work for the magazine and, and, and still work uh, with them, but they did a, a thing, the coolest offices in the United States. And uh, they thought my office was the coolest office in the United States with all the pinballs and antiques and cool stuff hanging around. And, and so they asked me if they could shoot me in the office. And yeah. uh, then they, they did for a while a little kind of expose, you know, my favorite room. And, yeah. Uh, so that's where they had me in that magazine. And, I love that. It's yeah. a cool thing. And I'll link to that in the show notes so everybody can uh, okay. can take a look at that. Uh, so let's start with how do you describe what you do? If you're meeting somebody at a cocktail party and, you're, and they're actually interesting and you want to have a conversation, and they say, <laughs> what do you do? How do you respond? What do you describe it as? Well, you know, the, the, the short answer, I suppose, is a smuggler, you know, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the long answer is um, I'm an antique dealer and a furniture designer and manufacturer. I've been an antique dealer now for 21 years and, um, you know, bringing things uh, 
from all over the world, uh, old old things, um, you know, to Atlanta and wholesaling them to various you know stores and and doing design work for different restaurants and and things like that. And and then 13 years ago, we started Bobo Intriguing Objects. So I'm the founder and owner of Bobo, and we're a wholesale company that supplies home furnishings to to stores. Um, and now we have, I think, almost 800 products in our line, um, things that we make new. And we make these things in, I think, 39 different factories in nine different countries across the world. So uh, Vietnam, China, India, Philippines, Brazil, um, Belgium, Nicaragua, and, and the United States. We make uh, some of our upholstery here in the United States as well. Well, that's very, very cool. Well, let's figure out how you got here. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Nebraska, believe it or not. Okay. You know, uh, me and the nine other people that live there. Um, you know, and, and it was uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Um, how did your parents get there? Why did they settle there? They grew up there. Um, they both grew up in Omaha and, and stayed there. And, and uh you know, it was, for me, it was a dream childhood. It was, you know, it was, um, my mom used to lock me out of the house, you know. I, I, she would kick me out about 8 in the morning and lock the door behind her, and it was come home when the streetlights, you know, uh, came on. That It was really that type of situation. And so, you know, we would just play football and baseball, and, you know, I have Cornhusker blood in my in my bones, and we'd ride bikes and go to the pools and and. And just just cause mayhem in the neighborhood for 12, 13 hours a day and, and, and come home for dinner. And, right. And uh, so it was kind of a, a dream childhood. I mean, you know, I got in as much trouble as I think humanly possible as, you know, for Nebraska. And, and I went to school at the University of Nebraska. Um, but my formative years were were in Omaha for the most part. What kind of, uh, what kind of student were you like in high school? Horrible. Did you care? Did you... No, horrible. In fact, um, you know, my graduating class was huge. I, I think it was somewhere in the, the 680 people um, in, in my class. And, and, you know, I knew I was never a good student, but I didn't know really until I remember when I was a senior and I went to the administration's office because you could see what your class rank was. I had no idea, you know, so I I thought, I wonder where I'm at. And I thought, you know, I'd be somewhere, you know, somewhere in the middle, maybe even the, you know, 30% range. And I think out of 683, I think I was like 589 or something <laughs> like that. It was, it, it was horrible. I mean, well, that I, sounds I, like I, me in law school. I, yeah, I barely, <laughs> I barely made it out of there, uh, you know, with, with, with C's, I guess, but, um, but uh, did that bother you all when you when no. you saw that? Were you no? It, it it didn't. You know, I was just um, I could get uh, I could get passing grades without really any effort or any studying, and so I choose chose to do that. Um, so what were you into? If, uh, studying wasn't what you were doing with your afternoons and evenings. <laughs> you know, it was an all American upbringing. You know, I played football for a couple of years and just hanging out with friends and 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 keg parties and just getting in trouble and mayhem and and just um it really was kind of a if there is such a thing an all-american upbringing i just messed around a lot you know yeah uh i read somewhere and by the way anytime i say i read somewhere it means i read it on the internet okay which means it very well could not be true (laughs) so correct me anytime i do that but uh i read somewhere that you were an only child 
and that you thought that that kind of affected you a little bit in your um, maybe wanderlust or appreciation of objects and things like that. No, is that I mean, true or no? No, I was not an only child. I was the oldest. <laughs> right, I was go. I was the oldest of three. I have a younger sister, uh, one year younger, and a brother five years younger. And um, you know, we grew up. I never thought for a minute that we were poor. Um, but my dad passed away about 12 years ago, and I was going through some of his old records when when that had happened. And and I think the 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 high water mark for his earnings was like 38,000 a year, you know. And I was a bit kind of shocked, you know. I thought we were super middle class, and I suppose that we were, but. You know, he paid $21,000 cash the year I was born for our house. And my mom still lives there. And in fact, if you go back to the house, my room is exactly how I left it. And almost, you know, since it, when no I was way. 18 years old. Yeah. And, and you know, we had we had pizza on, on Friday and we had steak on Saturday. And, and we would go to the Sears, you know, before school started. And I would get two pairs of jeans and five T-shirts and... Like I could get my my parents let me get any pair of shoes that I wanted, you know that was the big thing. So yeah. I was sporting you know Cortezes and shell toes and Puma fits and and things back there. I'm 54, so this was, you know, in the, in the kind of 70s and 80s when I grew up. Um, but we never really took vacations, you know. I, I think I went to two places growing up that didn't touch the state of Nebraska. You know, what we, were they? Uh, my dad had conventions one time in, in Hawaii and one in Washington, D.C. And they, he took us on those, the family on these on those two business conventions. But, you know, everything else there, there wasn't vacations. So I, I really didn't have a lot of, you know, travel growing up. Um, and Omaha can be kind of a small town, you know, and. And I realized that although it was a great place to grow up, um, unless you're kind of taking over your dad's, you know, business, there's not a lot of opportunity for you. And I always had this wanderlust, you know, I always had this this burning desire to, you know, see other places outside of Nebraska. And, and, and you know, that stayed with me and probably brought me to the profession I do today. What uh, What kind of business was your dad in? My dad was in the savings and loan business. He was he was he worked in a bank, um, and I think that affected me too to a certain extent. In that, um, you know, I knew always that that I was going to at some point run my own business or start my own business. Okay, um, so when do you first remember, like, remember thinking that or feeling that? Well, uh, you know, I thought it unfair. My dad worked in this bank for maybe twenty years, and then. All of a sudden, you know, in the early 80s, when I was in high school and and first started to go to college, there was no savings and loan anymore, right? The big crisis hit, and my dad was 20, 25 years at the same bank, you know, showing up to work every day, never missing, you know, and, and he's just out of a job, you know, through no fault of his own. And, and that affected me, I think, a little bit. And I thought... Man, you know, I'm just I'm just not um, set up to work for somebody else. Oh, that's interesting. You know, and and so I thought I'm just not going to do that. You know, if I work for somebody else, it's because you know it, it's what I want to do, and I can gain some kind of knowledge to further 
me starting my own business in some in some capacity at some day. Oh, that's interesting. What uh, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do, like in high school, or is that no, 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 cruising no. along? No, I mean, if it, it seems it seems ridiculous if ever anybody told me when I was in high school or even college that that I would be an antique dealer, you know, and a furniture designer and a manufacturer, I, I would have just said that they were crazy. You know, it, it's it's um, it, it's something that just just evolved and and. You know, I, I pinch myself to this day. My friends um, that have known me for years, they just, they, they kind of can't believe that, uh, <laughs> that this is what I do. But, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I think that's good. I, I think a lot of, you know, college students right now, they're in college and they don't know what they want to do. And for the most part, I think that's fine. I mean, if, you, if you're stressed about, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to study, I don't know what to do. You know, go to college and, and, and get a degree in something that interests you and don't worry about, you know, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life because the life isn't linear like that, you know. So, you know, even even all the way through graduate school, I had no idea what I wanted to do and, it, and it, I would have certainly never said this. Yeah, college is a great place to just explore. Exactly. You know, I think if it does feel like there's pressure right now to figure out exactly what you want to do and start training on that early and often. But, I mean, college is perfect for the person who's just trying to figure things out. Exactly. You went to Nebraska, right? University of Nebraska, twice, was, yeah. Was that a default choice because you were there, or did you was something you really wanted to go, or did you apply other places? No, it was a default choice, but it was the only avenue that was available to me, um, you know, it's uh, whew, uh, I was I think I think in Nebraska I'm probably getting the numbers wrong, but I think you needed like a minimum of twenty maybe on the ACT to uh, to go to Nebraska, and I figured ah, I could get that, so I took the ACT and I was hung over, had never <laughs> studied before, and, and and I think I got a twenty-one, you know. Right. But Nebraska was the only option for me. I think. Well, I know. Um, Tuition at the time was $30 a credit hour, in-state tuition for Nebraska. And I still, when I go home, uh, not too long ago, I was opening some of my drawers, and I saw a tuition slip, uh, and it was 1984 or something like that, and I took 15 credit hours, and I think it was like $450. That's crazy. Tuition for that semester. So, you know, my, my parents, you know, certainly helped me out anywhere I could, but... You know, Nebraska was the only even possibility uh, for me. But all my friends were going to Nebraska, and and it was really the only place I ever wanted to go. Now, uh, I I heard hints of a story that there was some trouble in Nebraska. What I don't know the details of that. Would you would you care to tell that story, or is that a story you'd rather not? Have? No, 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 no. no, no. That's that's uh, that's always a story that that comes up. So you know, I I went to Nebraska and. and and joined a fraternity, and and um, you know money was tight, and and I just certainly did not want to uh, get a job. I, you know, I, that, I for me, I, maybe I was just a bit, you know, naive, but I thought that's really going to cut into my drinking time. And, <laughs> you know, and it does. So so, but I needed money. You know, I didn't want to have the poor college experience, and and uh, girls seemed to like uh, going out with the guys that could take them out. So um, yes, they do. I became a bookie. Um, Shut up. No, I was a, I was a big bookie at the University of Nebraska, very big. Um, so I, I was always good in building relationships, and, and uh, people tended to trust me, and I knew a lot of people. And, and uh, 
So I became a bookie, and, and I had runners in every other fraternity, and they would take their bets and then submit them to me. I had runners, you know, people working for me, basically, is what you call a runner. They collected bets from their little circle, and, and I would give them 2 or 3%, you know, on the bets that they submitted to me. So every, every dorm floor, I had a runner. Every fraternity, I had a runner. And so all the bets um, poured into me. Holy shit. So what year is this? When did this start? This was 80... Not, not time, but like freshman year. Yeah, this year. was 83 to 86. And... Um, you know, uh, is this, this is undergrad. No, yeah, this was undergrad, and um, and so it was crazy. It got it got crazy, and and you know, I, I would have um, professors. You know, I would be sitting in class in an economics class with thirty thousand dollars cash in my pocket. Oh my god! And I knew that at the end of the class, I was gonna, I had to go up to the teacher and collect his. $150 they lost from me the weekend before. Holy crap. <laughs> I had athletes, you know, that were that were betting with me. And, and you know, I, back then I was probably doing $100,000 in bets every week, which is, you know, this That's is in the early huge. 80s. That's huge. That's like a million dollars today. You so know? where so, did the idea come? I always liked gambling on sports. I was kind of big into horse racing and, 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 and betting myself and, and uh you know, again, I learned very on that the house always wins. Right. You know, so if you're going to gamble, um, you're going to lose. Um, but if you take the bets, you're going to win. Um, and so, I, and so, I had I had this this you know this network set up, and and um, you know, I guess it was my senior year, I got busted, and that was so huge. How did you How did you get busted? What happened? I took a bet from a cop. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a, a guy called me and said, uh, oh, there's this guy that wants to bet. You should take his bets. He loses a lot, you know, but he's a good guy. He pays. I can vouch for him. And I took the bet, and it, it turned out to be a police officer. Was that guy in on it? The guy who? He was. He oh, was. son of a bitch. I know. He had got busted um, the year before and plead out because they said, you know, they knew about me. They said, we know you're a small, small-time guy, but you run everything up to this Mark Sage. So... Give us Mark Sage next year, and there'll be no charges against you. So, uh, where did you get the money to back for backing on this? Well, you know, or did you start small and just build it gradually. Or? Well, it's hedging. You know, I mean, when you're a bookie, um, you, there's a vig. You know, there's a ten percent vig. So you you bet one hundred and ten dollars to make a hundred dollars, and so that ten percent goes to the bookie. So, you know, in theory, you want the same amount of money on both sides. You want a thousand, you know, uh, dollars on each side. So if if games got lopsided, you'd hedge them. So if I had too much money, let's say the Colts are playing the Rams, and I have too much money on the Colts, I would call another bookie and hedge that that Colt bet. Um, so I would always try to have fifty percent of each money, and and so you start like that, and then you realize that. Um, you take all the parlays, you know, and, and that's like easy money and all the kind of stupid bets. And, <laughs> you know, and, and so I was only using other bookies as a hedge maybe the first year. And, okay. then, and then after that, you just take all the, all the action yourself. So you were, you were doing college in style with I money. Was. And- I was. It was uh, – I always had, uh, had, had plenty of money. And, and uh, yeah, one day I was, I was upstairs playing cards in the fraternity and, and – um, there was a big ruckus downstairs and, and people started running upstairs and they found me and they said, Sage, Sage, 
there's a SWAT team in your bedroom. There's cops everywhere. You know, they had kicked down the door of my fraternity house and raided me. And and I thought, well, you know, show's over. So I went downstairs and 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 turned myself in. And and um, you know, they they took me out of the fraternity, you know, in handcuffs. And all the news crews were there. I mean, it was. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Yeah, right it was now? weird. You know, it was. Had you contemplated I, this? I thought about my parents. You know, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this is going to be kind of hard for them. But, I mean, my parents weren't, you know, when you have a kid that's in college and doesn't have a job and he doesn't ever call home and ask for any money, like, it doesn't take a, you know, a genius to say he's up, he's up to something. You They're know? probably I mean, relieved it wasn't drugs. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, they, they, they you know, 10 o'clock news, they, they took, me, took me out down to the police station and booked me and... The next, you know, the, the Daily Nebraskan, which was the kind of campus newspaper, it was front page news for about a week because we had all these, you know, these stings in different fraternity houses and, and, um, and uh, you know, it was on the Omaha, it was the lead story on the Omaha news, all three channels. And, and um, you know, it was, it, was, it was a big deal back then. In fact, Sports Illustrated wrote an article about it. Um, 86, you could still probably look it up. They did an article about gambling in America. And this ring uh, was so big, it, it was, they wrote about me for about two paragraphs and the, and the, 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 the bookmaking operation that went down at the, at the right, University, try to find that University of Nebraska. That's, it was a, a, thousand, a thousand years ago. And, and um, yeah, they took all my homework. They took all my books. They took, you know, all, my phone. The, everything they they confiscated out of my, out of my fraternity room, and and uh, so I got a call from the dean um, the next day or two days after, and he sat me down and he said, uh, you know, you're 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 going to be kicked out of school, and I thought, phew, that's no good, and he said, but. If you do this, you can remain in school. And, and the, the, the plea bargain, I guess, I took was um, they wanted to do an anti-gambling uh, presentation or rally at Nebraska. Right. And they brought in Art Schleister, who was the old Ohio State quarterback who had got busted for, for gambling. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. And he was going to talk to the students about the ills, you know, uh, of gambling. And he said, uh, you have to introduce Art Schleister at this anti-gambling presentation, and you can stay in school. Um, so I That's did that. easy. Yeah, God. so that was an easy choice. So I no jail time, no. No, 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 no. In right. fact, uh, I think I think my total fine was like eight hundred dollars, if I remember right. Um, and the cop uh, that had lost money to me lost like two thousand. And the check went into my checking account, so they had me dead to rights. But um, it, the, that money stayed there, so it kind of, you know, the the, the fine was nothing. But um, but Did it they was confiscate uh, all the cash that you had on hand. Nothing, nothing, nothing like that. No, nothing like that. So, Jesus, so you got the chance to yeah. introduce somebody? That yeah, was the yeah, yeah. It was it was fun. It was fun times. You know, I mean, it was. You know, there was no internet, you know, and, and so people would actually have to fill out forms and check mark the box of the bet team they wanted to bet. And they had to pay me by Thursday night um, to bet the following weekend. All bets had to be, you know, cleared. So there was a bar on Thursday night called the Brass Rail. Um, I think it's still there in Lincoln, Nebraska. And that's where you had to come to pay me 
uh, money sitting in a uh, booth. Like, yeah, you know, I used and... to walk into that bar, uh, and and you know, by the time I was through the front door to the time I got to the back, I would probably have twenty twenty five thousand dollars cash given to me. That's insane. <laughs> and I was to a me. I was a good pool player, so then I would shoot uh, pool with that money and hustle uh, hustle the kids again for. Uh, uh, on pool. What a badass Mark Sage. That's amazing. <laughs> it was, uh, there were good times in college. So what, so if somebody didn't pay, was that, would they, was, I mean, did you have like people or did you, would they just couldn't bet with the future? Or like, how'd you handle that? It's interesting. I never got violent. Um, um, but things did get out of hand. There was, there was a couple of fraternities that had lost a lot of money and things started to go missing in those fraternities. Uh, Stereos were stolen and pawned and pay me and, and, you know, things like that. But, you know, I, I had a trick and that was, you know, I think most people, uh, there's an underwriting thing that you don't want to disappoint your parents, you know? So let's say you lost $500 to me and you couldn't pay. I wouldn't get, you know, threaten you really in any way. I would say, you know, listen, let's come up with a payment plan. Pay me, you know, pay me $150 a week for the next, you know, few weeks and we'll clear this up and then you can go again or, or, and if they, there was very few, but if they refused completely, I would find out, um, where their father worked, and I would get the phone number, and that wasn't always so easy back then. Yeah, right. You can just Google that, <laughs> you know. And a couple of times, I would have this on a piece of paper, and they'd say, well, "I'm not going to pay you." You know, there's nothing you can do to me. And I said, "Yeah, you're probably right." But I, I would slide this piece of paper across the table, and I said, uh, "Do you recognize this phone number?" And it was his father's number at his office. And I said, "If you can't pay me, I'll call him." and maybe see what he can do. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and uh, you always got paid after that. So uh, that's it, it wasn't it, it wasn't the strong arm, I'm going to break your legs. It wasn't it wasn't any of that. And, yeah. and you know, I, I'm talking about in in 3 or 4 years that I did this, you know, that situation maybe came up 3 times. But um for the most part people paid. Uh, are you still? Are you still? Do you still gamble now? Now that there's so many legal ways to do it, I do. Is you it know, still appealing? yeah, I do. You know, I mean, um, probably every week. But I, I gamble with uh, you know friends on on DraftKings. We do a lot of fantasy betting. I, I bet golf every single week. You know, I still I still like to bet horse races and things like that. But you can't win money. You know, if you're betting, you know, I, I you know, I, I like to gamble. I bet on the golf course, you know, I lose a lot of money on the golf course, but, <laughs> uh, but no, I don't, uh, I don't bet like I, I used to for sure. So I've been doing this podcast about a year, mm-hmm. uh, and generally do like one a month. And so you're my second bookie so far. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> so another guy, he was, uh, like started off, you know, like as a 17 or 18 year old, like working, uh, in a construction business, and, you know, one of he was a runner. And so, like, okay. he would go get him coffee and things like that and go place their bets. Yep. And, you know, it didn't take him long to be like, you know what? I can do this. I, I could just, I can be the bank. That's and right. And then if he had a huge bet, he would, he would then go place it, you know, with the track or whatever. But if it wasn't, he would just do it himself. And you're right. The, the house wins. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that was, uh, that was 
you know, a large part of my college experience. It was a lot of fun. I bet it was. Was it? Uh, so you went to grad school there too, right? I did. So, um, you know, I graduated with a degree in finance and accounting and, and uh, stayed in Lincoln. Appropriate. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and I, so I sold um, computer advertising. Uh, I worked for a magazine called PC Today and and I had the East Coast as my territory. Um, so I would go out and, and f- call on various computer companies, people that made computers and, and try to get them to advertise in the magazine, which was an interesting job because um, you're knocking on doors uh, doing sales. So I've always been a very good um, seller. And this is the first time I had a territory, first time traveling, you know, to, to Boston and New York. And and, um, and it was fun. Um, but I did that for about a year and, and realized, you know, that uh, and I was making kind of pretty good money, um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I did what I think a lot of people do. Maybe when they don't know what they do want to do, they go back to school, and I got offered a scholarship. So the University of Nebraska, believe it or not, said uh, we'd like you to come back here and teach uh, a class, um, and and if you do so, we'll we'll pay for your uh, MBA. That's so, awesome. So I went back and, and uh, taught um, uh, franchise management. Franchising was the area of business that I was most interested in. And, and in, in the 80s, it was you know, kind of extremely popular. And so I, ta- I taught a class, a ma- business management class focusing on uh, franchising. And the appeal of franchising is that you can be your own boss, but yet you're also not completely out there on your own? Correct. Correct. So... So I did that and, and stayed in school, and, and um, th- that was fun. What kind of franchises? Were you, were you thinking of franchises for yourself as well? As no, no, not really. I was just teaching the class. And, and um, you know, one thing I would say is if, if, I'm a, if I'm listening right now and I'm a college student, the best thing you can do to get grades is go see your professors in their office. I'm telling you, because I'm sitting there all day long. No one comes to see me, right? You know, and, and every once in a while, there was a student that would come in and just say, ah, you know, we got this test coming up in three weeks. What should I really study? And I would basically just tell <laughs> him, like, yeah, right. Do you need to know this, right? And, and, and the students that actually did that came to see me, straight A students. Because they, they cut out 90% of the bullshit that they needed to know. Oh, that's such great advice. You know, that's and, so smart. And, and I'm going to tell my sons when they get into college, you know, develop a relationship with your professor. Go in and take them cookies. Go in and j- just just say, ah, you know, I like I liked this, uh, the, this, what you talked about in class. I didn't like this. It's, it's, it's almost an easy way to straight A's without studying. And nobody does it. I think to this day, nobody does that's it. That's great advice. Did you enjoy <laughs> teaching? I did, you know. I mean, it was uh, it was great, you know. I was I, I kind of assistant taught, so I had uh, you know an instructor over me that that kind of gave me the curriculum, and and so it was it was fairly easy. So so I graduated, got my MBA, and and was looking at different franchise companies to um, to go work for, and and it could have been anything. I mean, I, I looked at Popeyes fried chicken, I looked at Jiffy Lube, I looked at you know. Whether you're franchising a donut or an oil change or a, a, a cookie or a, a piece of chicken, um, it, it's a certain way to do business. And so I chose uh, a job with the Barbers Incorporated out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they franchised hair salons. 
Okay. And for me, it was a perfect decision. I went there because the owner was just, you know, this incredibly great guy, Joe Francis, a mentor of mine. And, and um, he, he told me his dream was to take the haircut franchise concept and take it overseas. Um, and that's really what I was interested in, in doing, um, American franchising, taking those concept overseas. And he said, uh, you come work for me and that's what you'll be doing. Um, so I went to work for the, the barbers and it was, I mean, it was a great, great choice because, um, you know, it was, it was an industry that was 90% women. Yeah. <laughs> right 10 percent guys and that 10 percent was usually gay so it was it was like i was you know a fox in the chicken coop so so um after my mba i started working with them and the was it were you going to be overseas immediately or what, what kind of training do they have i mean no i was with them for about six months and i became the director of uh, uh de- development um for the east coast and which is a very rapid ascension, but they said, okay, we want you to be the director of operations for the East Coast. You can move anywhere on the East Coast that you want, um, but this is your salary. This is what your salary is going to be, and it's not going to change. Okay. So I thought, well, I'm going to live in New York City. You know, I thought that's, that's the dangerous place, you know, and, and so I went to New York City, and I was looking for apartments, and I realized I would be, you know, showering and cooking at the same time with what I could afford, you know, and I thought maybe Philadelphia. So I went there, looked for apartments, and, and that didn't suit me. And I came to Atlanta kind of on a whim. And this was in 1990. Um, is that right? So, yeah, 1990. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was paradise for me. So I moved, I moved to Atlanta. I, I came here, and uh, I don't know if anybody's listening from Atlanta, but the first place I saw was a place called Post Peachtree Hills. And they are these like fantastic apartments with pools and tennis courts and 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 they were for like no money for like five hundred dollars and and post Peachtree Hills happens to be right behind a famous strip club in Atlanta called the Gold Club and I I, I looked at the apartment said this is great and I went out to the pool and it was nothing but strippers at two o'clock in the afternoon oh my god I couldn't sign the lease fast enough so. <laughs> I'll pay you to let me live yeah, here. Yeah, so uh, so so I moved into Post Peachtree Hills and and um, lived there for a year, and then uh, you know bought a house, bought a house in Inman Park uh, in the early ninety one, I guess, um, and uh, and made my made my home Atlanta. So you already at this point you are very self directed. Is this? Is this just something that is just within you, and this is how you operate? Is this instilled with the parents? Like, where did this drive and kind of uh, like over over eager, not over eager, but like early maturity come from? Uh, I don't know if it's a maturity. I, th- I still think I'm a little kid. You know, I don't know if there's a uh, also uh, be able to manage doing the bookie business, and then like you know yeah. have the wherewithal to know that you know only rent for a year and then buy a house. Like that's that's beyond most you know, early 20 year olds. You I know, I, I guess, uh, I don't know really, you know, I always kind of knew that I wanted to do something. I just never know exactly what. And I was big into like, I, I'd read all the, you know, Napoleon Hill stuff and, and, it, you know, would, would go to some, you know, subtle improvement. Who, who is Napoleon, Napoleon Hill? Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich, you know, okay. he, he did some, some self-help books and I would read those and, and I was a big believer early on in that if you 
want something or you want to do something or you want to go in a specific direct direction, write it down. Mm. And, and people would make fun of me on the backs of my doors in the fraternity. I would put pictures of what I wanted to look like up. You know, I was a big weightlifter oh, back then. And, and I, I would, you know, I, it was all, I'd make all these kind of collages of fortune cookie things that, that resonated with me. So and, you were vision boarding before people were vision boarding. Yeah, this was, no one had ever heard of it before, you know. And, and um, you know, I, I, I was reading a lot of stuff and, and, and different things. So, you know, I always, I always uh, you know, kind of felt that, um, you know, that I wanted to do something. Um, what that was, I had no idea. But um, I was always maybe a little bit driven uh, like that, but I have no idea where it comes from. And how long were you with uh, the the barbers? The barbers. So, so th- th- this was a big transition in my life. So I was with them for a total of nine years, and uh, three years I was the director of operations for uh, the East Coast. And then you know I got the call uh, saying that we want you to become vice president of international development. Can we, can we real quick when you work on the East Coast? What are you actually doing? Are you are you trying to find people to come buy franchises? Or are you what are you, what are you doing? No, we would sell a franchise and then and then I would help them, you know, um, make ensure that they made money. Okay. So I was like your business advisor. You know, I would help you hire your stylists. You know, I would analyze your P and Ls after a year and say, okay, your shampoo costs are too high, your labor costs are too high. Um, you, you know, um, I would uh, be involved a little bit in 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 finding locations uh, for you in your territory uh, to put, um, you know, to put salons. But but you know. I didn't know how to cut hair. I couldn't trim a hedge, you know. So I came in and basically acted as, you know, we're in a partnership together and use me as a resource to so you can make money. Did you enjoy that? I did. I did. You know, you're, you're working with a, a lot of people from just all walks of life, you know, people that buy franchises, some are school teachers or airline pilots or retired or so, you know, they, they have, and some are actually, you know, hairstylists. Um, so you're, you're, you're dealing with different people from a lot of different skill sets. And I didn't have to be too smart because, you know, I saw what everybody else in the country was doing. I think when I left that position, I think I was kind of a business advisor to about 300 salons. And so, each one did something extremely well, and each one did something extremely poorly, and I was able to disseminate this information. I'm, I would say, you know, there's this store down at Orlando that's doing this. I think it would benefit you. So when I came to visit people, they were interested in hearing what I had to say because I was trying to make them money. Right. Uh, a lot of traveling, it sounds like. Tons. Tons of traveling. Is that something you en- you'd enjoy in the business context, or, or I loved it because you're young and you're, yeah, why not? I loved it. You know, I, tr- traveling is uh, you know is something that I I, I I just took to it and and I still do. You know, so where did they start you off overseas? So um, basically, uh, for six years, um, I had an apartment in Paris, and I had. Uh, a kind of an apartment in Moscow and an apartment in Minneapolis. And I would basically spend four months uh, of the year in Minneapolis, Russia, Moscow, and, and France. And poof, it was a dream. The very first international trip I took in my life 
was to Moscow. And I think it changed my life. It changed, it changed everything. It changed the, you know, my vision and, 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 and how I look at the world. And, and it was the precursor to, you know, doing what I do now. Tell me, tell me more. Tell me, tell me how it changed you as specifically as you can, or like what made the impression or just, yeah, just tell me more. Well, Russia in 1993 was crazy because they, it's almost like they just said, pooh, this is capitalism, go, you know, and, and I went there and, and um, so I was working with Russians that were putting up hair salons. I put five hair salons in, in, in Russia um, and the stories that I have, I mean, that could go on for hours, but, but, um, you know, it was always, you know, in Russia, it was, if I say to you, this is white, they say to me, no, it's black. And I think when you travel, most Americans try to tailor their international trip to, they want to fit it, understand it in American mind frame. You know, their first question is, if I say it's white and you say it's black, they'll try to convince them it's white. I never did that. I always tried to assimilate myself into a different culture. And it was the first time I tried that. So I was not at all interested in, in trying to convince them it was white. I wanted to know why they thought it was black. And it changed my life, really, Russia. Um, you know, the the... The, the, I used to go to Russia and, and smuggle things into Russia. So we, I would, I would, you know, the tariff uh, at the time for nail polish that the salon sold might've been three or 400%. So they would have me go over to Russia with two suitcases filled with nail polish. Really? Yeah. You know, a thousand bottles of nail polish. And it was like midnight run. I was smuggling things in and, and, you know, I'd go through the security line and, and, you know, lights would go off and they'd go crazy and, and they'd take my suitcases and they'd put me in this room and they would uh, start yelling at me and then they'd bring in someone that spoke English and they'd physically beat me up. No shit. Yeah. Never, they'd never punched me with a, with a closed hand, but they'd slap me around and yell at me and tell me I'm going to prison. And, and my whole life, I, all these dangerous situations that I've been in, in Russia, there was a lot of them. Um, I, I never was affected by it. I always thought it was kind of funny. It's like watching yourself on a movie instead of it actually happening to you. But I was prepped a little bit. They, t they told me this is going to happen and don't worry about it. Who's and the they you're referring to now? The Russians that I was working with. Okay. So I would, I would say, listen, outside this glass partition, I have a person waiting for me. Take me out there. And he'll explain it to you. And so they would put an Uzi at the back of my head and walk me, you know, there'd be a glass wall, a thousand faces pressed up against it, you know, and then you'd go out this glass, glass wall and you'd be finished with customs. And I had my trusty Russian, you know, uh, kind of bodyguard, personal assistant, whatever. His name was Zhenya. And, and he, he would be there. And then he, they'd bring him back and they'd slap him around for a little bit. And he'd come and say, I need 600 bucks. So I'd give him $600 and he'd be out and say, okay, grab your suitcases. We're going to go. And, and that would happen every single time I went to Russia. And the first time that happened, you were still able just to be cool. Yeah, and calm yeah, and yeah, yeah. For some reason, for some reason I was. And Russia was a crazy place. It was, I used to. Um, I guess bribe maybe is not a, the right word, but I used to carry 
uh, Big Red Gum. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like cinnamon gum. Yeah. And bottles of nail polish um, in my in my little knapsack, and and Russians had never had the taste of cinnamon before. It was something that was completely oh, that bizarre to them. And so, anytime I wanted anything that there was pushback, I just slip somebody uh, uh, here take this, and it'd be a little thing of of big red gum, and you could get into anything. <laughs> One time, it was. Two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, I am hammered, you know, vodka, and I'm walking through Red Square, and and uh, Genya says, uh, you want to see Lenin? I say, sure. And Lenin is buried in Red Square. His tomb is there, and he's embalmed, so he's in a casket. He's laying in the casket. You can see him. He's, he's wide open, just just perfect. So I go to the guards, and I gave him each a... Each a uh, you know, thing of big red gum, and they let me in at two o'clock in the morning by myself. I sat there with a bottle of vodka, and me and Lennon, nobody else in a dark room, and I'm just sitting drinking vodka with Lennon for like an hour. Well, who knew big red had such power? <laughs> That's <laughs> and, amazing. And nail polish, and and um, I mean, it was it was it was a crazy crazy time. There what's, was what's like a typical Tuesday when you're doing this. Like let's say you're in you're in you're in Russia. It's Tuesday. You're working your thing. When like, I first started there, I mean, I, I would I would this, the first salon had been open, and and so I was watching how things were working, and and um, I noticed that all the stylists were stealing money. One stylist in particular was stealing a lot of money. She was charging the customers way too much. Okay. And pocketing the rest of the money. And, and, and so I was watching this and it, it happened over and over. And so after two days, I went to the owners of the salon and I say, listen, there's something I need to tell you. Your, your, your stylists are stealing from you. One in particular stealing a lot of money. And they said, really, which one? And I said, it's this girl. They promoted her on the spot to manager. Shut up. In Russia, that's considered a sign of you want to improve yourself. That's considered like ingenious, you know, and yeah. and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that's that's considered anytime you got a bill in Russia, it was wrong, and so you'd have to negotiate, you know. So they're like, she's giving wrong bills, and people aren't aren't paying the lower amount. That's genius, you know. So all those things, you know, that that would happen, you know, it was fascinating to me that that. Um, you know, you would you would see this, and and they would promote that girl. You know, I was just watching a movie, and I can't remember what it is, so I just could be embarrassing myself. But basically, uh, this one guy is employing the other for something nefarious, and he says, uh, you know, like, you know, you're charging, you're taking ten percent off the top, aren't you? You know, and the guy, he's like, no. He was like, well, if you can't, uh, you know, if you can't, if I can't trust you to look out for yourself, how are you going to look after me? Right, <laughs> the same kind of thing. I was American Gods. So that's what it was. Yeah. Show. So you know, I have just you know thousands of of stories. I was in Vladivostok, and I was one of the first. That's all the way above North Korea, and it was their naval base. And I was one of the first Americans that they allowed in there. And we we put a uh, a salon in in Vladivostok. I met with the mayor. I was on TV. Um, they gave me the key to the city, and and you know I I. There was it was almost no Americans had had gone in there, so I, it was experience where I I know what maybe like, you know Tom Cruise feels like. I was walking down the street, you know, and there was a mob of people following me, wanting to see me, and I would stop to look in the window, and the whole mob would stop, 
That's insane. And then I would I would move on and and um, one of the things that that affected me that that I was you know happened when I was in in Moscow and and this has led to a, a I guess a distrust of the news. Like I don't read the news, you know. I I, I read sports scores and maybe some entertainment stuff, but. Um, I was in Moscow and Red Square, and uh, there was uh, CNN was there, and they were covering covering an anti-Bush demonstration that was going on in Moscow. Okay, and they had their TVs there, and CNN was there, and uh, it was maybe thirty kids, all kids, that were just there because they were wanting to get laid or something to do, have fun. <laughs> so they had these down with Bush, you know, no Iraq war, you know, signs. And CNN was there. And, and they I watched them behind the cameras orchestrate the whole thing. Really? Yeah. They, they, they put all the kids together. So it looked like a large group of people. And they shot it really close, you know. And then there was one babushka woman, you know, with this mustache and the kerchief and she was walking by with her groceries they grabbed her and they put her in the middle of the kids <laughs> and they shot her really tight from low to high you know and then the the anchor stepped in and said i'm here in the middle of red square you know in this massive bush demonstration anti-bush demonstration and you know things are bedlam and i'm sitting there right there and right, having a seat, having a smoking a cigarette, and th- watching. There's literally nothing happening. Yeah, and I thought to myself, this is what is coming across on American TVs, thousands of miles away. Right, this is shaping our opinion. It's shaping our opinion, and it's absolutely and completely false. And and America back then needed a boogeyman. You know, we always need a boogeyman, whether it's Russia or Iraq or Iran, or North Korea, you know. Back then it was Russia. Remember, Russia was the, oh, the, yeah. the big bad bear, right? Completely. You know? and, 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 and I thought to myself, this isn't accurate. You know, I, I found the Russians to be, you know, endearing and generous and funny, and they just taught me a, a lot. Um, and so I, you know, there's a lot of Russian stories, but I started to, um, instead of nail polish, I started to bring in things that I could sell in Russia. Mm. So um, I would bring in Levi's jeans. I would bring in T-shirts, you know, T-shirts that said Harvard and Yale, you know, and, and I would sell those to some Russians who would sell them for more money. Socks, for some reason, the, the socks in Russia were crap. So I'd bring in those really kind of nice, thick champion socks, right. to, you know, and sell those. and. And then I would fill my suitcases up with um, Russian stuff, you know, religious icons, propaganda posters, you know, fur hats, you know, Russian art, you know, that kind of stuff. And I would bring it back to the United States and sell it to friends. Um, so I was kind of smuggling things in, you know, both ways. And I was in, in Paris too, four months a year. And, and I was, you know, I always liked going to, you know, the small towns in France and, and the antique shows and buying small things and I'd bring them back and I'd have them laid out in my apartment and people would just be fascinated by, by these things. So I would just kind of start selling them, you know, some of the things that I brought back. So it was really the first kind of, you know, time I dabbled in, you know, in antiques. Yeah. Kind of started starting it off. What, um, 
uh, Paris and uh, France and Russia are very different, I presume. How are they? How are they alike? Um, there's not many ways that they're that they're alike. You know, I, French French people I love. You know, um, I I kind of you know I speak French a better better uh, then than I do now. But I learned to speak French. And kind of had a, a French girlfriend uh, for a second to. Who helped with that? You know, that's the best way. Anybody out there that, uh, in fact, I met her. Um, we were the only time I went to take lessons. I went to take a French lessons, and I signed up for like seven or eight weeks of French lessons, and 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 went there. And and the first couple hours, it was just frustrating because you're in a French class, and the the woman only speaks French, right? So I'm like, I don't know what that means. You know, can you tell me what that means in English? So it was frustrating, and I went out in the hallway. And, there was a girl there who was there for English classing classes, but she had already kind of spoke better English. And so I, I met her like so, and, and we, we just decided, you know, let's just go get a cup of coffee and we'll, you teach me French and I'll teach you English. And so I took lessons for about all of four hours and never went back to the class class again. So um, that's the, the, the best way to learn French is to get a French girlfriend. But the French are the French are the French are just different too. And and I love that the way that they're different. You know, it's um, everyone says the French are arrogant and pains in the asses. And I I can you know I know where Americans get that thought. But you know I'm an American and I lived in Paris and you know. Americans would would grab me on the street and say, "Tell me where the Eiffel Tower is," and I would pretend I didn't speak speak uh, English either. <laughs> you know, you need you need to have you, you have to understand that in Paris, people are doing that to them ten times a day. Right. You know, uh, all you have to know is "Excuse moi, je vous dérange, mais," you know, "Excuse me, sorry to bother you," but then you can speak in English if you just know those nine words. They'll go out of your way to, to to help you, but you don't, and so they you know, Americans think you know the French are assholes. So it's not necessarily too, but 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 um, yeah, France was great. I mean, you know, uh, the, the lifestyle of France. You know, you, you you don't want the lifestyle in Russia. Everybody is too drunk all the time. You know, my my interpreter Jenya at the time he was maybe thirty, and he said he didn't think that he'd live past fifty six. And he died. He died at 55. They just started drinking. It's just you so ingrained in the culture. Oh, my gosh. We would drink. Lunch or- we would drink like crazy. We would, you know, you, you would drink, uh, you would sit down with four people and a bottle of vodka would go down at lunch and you'd finish that bottle. Jesus. And, you know, toasts and and all of this. And, and um, you know, we would be out till, I was younger, you know, you could do anything when you're younger. We'd be sure. out till two, three in the morning. And Jenny would would sleep on the in the, he had one suit sleep in that suit on the floor of my you know uh, you know or on the sofa of my apartment and and um, the next morning uh, you know I'd wake up take a shower and and I'd come back out and he would have this hangover concoction which to this day is the best hangover concoction you could ever drink bring I think it he, I think he called this? it a yosh so he would take shot glasses and he would. Um, grind fresh ground pepper about three quarters of the way, you know, in the shot glass. Okay. And he would pour vodka over that pepper. And then you had to drink that. God. It was, it was, uh, 
It was great. And, and, and so you drank it, and it is kind of the hair of the dog, but I think most of it is nothing for the rest of your day will be worse than that experience. So you might as well just get up and get on with right, it. You're feeling better and better and better as the day goes on because you don't have to do that. Three quarters yeah. full of pepper? Yeah, pepper, yeah, yeah. I was in I was in Omsk, which is in Siberia. We put a salon there in middle of nowhere, you know, Siberia. Like who's who's actually been to Siberia? And and um, I was really sick from drinking, uh, and, and I had to meet this big fancy lawyer. And I go in his office, and uh, um, I'm talking to him about something, and my stomach is just killing me, and I, I have to wretch. So. I basically run to his desk, grab his, grab his uh, trash can and wretch. <laughs> and I, I'm so embarrassed, you know, and, and they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you need this. And, and so they went out and they got me this, this remedy and they put it in my hand. And it looked just exactly like two Kingsford charcoal briquettes. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And, and they said, eat these. And, and so I ate them and... They tasted horrible. They tasted like you're eating a Kingsford charcoal briquette, <laughs> you know. My tongue is black. And, and uh, I said, what, what is this? Um, and they said, it's chalk. It's charcoal and chalk. And uh, that's what it was. And I said, I think this will kill you. I think it's, like, dangerous to eat this, you know, in the United States. No, no, that'll, that'll you know, help, help your stomach. And, and, uh, did it work? It did work. It did work, actually. Um, well, so, that make like kale in it. You know, people that give you know kale in for like stomach upset. And yeah, you know, part of chalk. And you're eating dirt, and but I let the, you know the, all the traditions of Russia. You know, you, you there was just thousands of them. You know, you you can never shake a man's hand with the glove on. Um, you can never pour a drink backhanded. You always have to pour it forehanded. You can never exit a, a row of seats um, with your back uh, to a person. Like if you're in a movie theater and you're in the middle aisle. Okay, you give them the front. You give them the front. Um, there's a whole thing about toasting, uh, and, and the, the, the host has to make the first toast. Everybody drinks a shot of vodka. The second toast always has to be uh, from someone who's dead, and it has to be right after the first one. Wait, it has to be, say it again? It has to be a toast uh, to someone who's no longer with us. Okay, and right after. Right after. And then so... You take that toast, and then the third toast, which has to be right after that, is the, the guest of honor, which would usually be me. And so I would make a toast, and then you throw that back. So as soon as you sit down for any meal, it's three shots of vodka right off the bat. Golly, meals sound like fun. It was fun. <laughs> while you're young. Yeah, yeah, while you're young. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't conceive of doing that, uh, that any longer, but... Uh, it was fun back then. What have you retained from uh, Russia in particular, but also, I guess, France that you've incorporated either consciously or just subconsciously into your like your daily life kind of here? Or is it more of just like an essence of having experienced it? No, I think that um, it, it's important to view the world uh, not with your own eyes, but with their eyes. You know, and, and I think that's probably helped me, you know, the most. Um, when I'm developing a network of pickers that I have right now in France and Belgium, you know, that, that I rely on to find me antiques, you know, I, I, I went to these shows, these antique shows, and, and I wasn't looking for things when I first started. 
I was looking for relationships. And I think that's different than most Americans or most antique dealers. They see something and they say, how much is it? You know, I saw something and it would be a booth with a lot of things I liked. And I would never talk about prices, uh, especially to the French. I, I'd, I'd say, you know, where do you live? Do you have a lot of this stuff? You know, how do you find your things? Can I come visit you? You know, and and I would go to their houses and I would find out, you know, I would meet their children and I would have uh, a dinner with them and some wine and, you know, I always began by trying to get an idea of who they were and, and you know, how they viewed their country and how they viewed their lives and their businesses and, and never try to impose, you know, what I wanted to do. And, and over the years, I, I think that's probably, you know, you know, I know it served me well, but I'm a big believer in in travel, you know, expands your uh, vision. You know, if I had stayed in Nebraska, you know, I would probably know all there is to know about Omaha, Nebraska, you know. But as it stands now, I've been to 70 different countries in my life and, and you know, I want to go to 70 more and and it, it, you 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 tend to not want to be right because when you travel, you can't be right, you know, and a lot of people have a need to be right. Um, (laughs) But it it expands your vision. It expands um, the way you see humanity and the way you see other people. And, you know, I I think that, you know, I think I I, I take my kids to different countries all the time. My oldest is 14. I think he's been to 17 or 18 different countries now. And I imagine that those trips, those, you know, trips that we've made abroad, he doesn't know it yet, but it'll shape who he is as a person and expand his vision. It'll change the vector of his life at an early age. Um, And I think at the end of the day, become much more valuable to him than anything he's learned in school. What advice would you give parents who are who would who would like to give their child that kind of vision and opportunity, but maybe... um or either hesitant or a little bit scared or do you have any advice or tips for, for them on how to, how to make that happen? Cause that's, I mean, who wouldn't want that for their child? Right. You know, I, I would just say, you, you know, go, um, you know, even if it's, even if you have to go to Canada or Mexico or Jamaica or Costa Rica or someplace close, you know, go and get out of the, you know, all inclusive, you know, tailored to American tourists places and, and get on the beaches where there's nobody there. Right. And, you know, give your kids money and say, go get us lunch. That's a great way to, you know, I I would get, I, you know, we'd be in some third world country. I'd give my, my child 10 bucks and I say, okay, go get us something to eat. And he'd look at me wide eyed, you know, he doesn't speak the language. He doesn't, you know, but there's something about going up to somebody that doesn't speak your language, you have nothing in common with, and you play the game of charades. You point at this and you point at this, you know, and then you give him the money, you know, and he comes back with stuff that he doesn't know what it is, you know, right. and, you know, and, and it's just, you know, that, that that's a huge learning opportunity that you can give, you know, your children if you put them in those awkward positions. And it's so easy to do, and there's really... There's really the only downside is you get a crappy meal and you pay too much. 
right? right. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no, there's no downside to it. So I would always say, you know, just go, just go with your kids. You know, I, I'm to the point right now, and I guess I've always had it that I just can't imagine, you know, going through life and not seeing like every inch of the world that I could possibly see. Right. It's just, it's just what I've always wanted to do, you know, just because it's so different and so mind expanding and unique. It's, it's, I guess it's my drug, you know? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> uh, so eventually this company got bought out, correct? This company got bought or out. merged so with, with another one? It did. So, um, you know, so I was... Just before we get to, yeah. to that, were you... Are you thinking about like, okay, 10 years from now, I want to be doing X while you're doing this job? Or are you just in the moment loving this or? Hell no. I was in, I was loving it. I mean, I was there working and, and it was great. And I had no, you know, no plans to do anything else really. Um, yeah, you know, and I got a call from Minneapolis and they said, there's something important we need to t- tell you about. Come into Minneapolis. And, and uh, so I did and. And uh, nine o'clock sat down with our, you know, our CEO and, and um, they basically said, uh, we're shutting down the international department, which was a huge surprise to me. No idea. And they say, we want you back here, um, you know, in Minneapolis. And, and what I did know at the time was they'd sold the company. They just hadn't announced it yet. Mm. But they said, we want you to manage, you know, seven, eight hundred people and, and live in Minneapolis and I thought, no way. Yeah, how do you, know? you how do you go there after no way. what you're doing? So I said, well, you know, what are what are my options? And they said, they kind of gave me a golden handshake a little bit. They said, you know, we're going to pay you, you know for your apartment in Paris for a year. We're going to give you a salary for a year, a severance, and and um, I think I had some stock options, and the, you know maybe that was twenty thousand dollars. It wasn't a, a ton of money, but Within an hour, they said, you know, sign here, you're done. Wow. A complete surprise. Yeah. But I did have some time to think about what I wanted to do. So went back to Paris and, and um, you know, had my little apartment in the 6th and, and, uh, and, and really had some time to think about what I wanted to do. And, and um, How old are you at this point? Mm, this was... 21 years ago. I'm 54, 33, something like that. Okay. Early 30s. Early 30s. And and um, so, you know, I, I, had, I had read something about a magic pill. You know, someone, and I think people talk about this a lot, but the, the, the gist of it was if there was a magic pill and you could take this pill and you could do whatever you want, you know, what would you do? And I thought about that for a second. And, and I said, I want to do, I want to stay international travel, but get back to the States, you know, now and again. I like to buy things. I like to, so I thought I'm going to become an antique dealer. Just like that. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, I was kind of doing it a little bit, you know, selling trinkets to friends. 
And I ran around with a lot of antique dealers, you know, in France for whatever reason. I just liked the lifestyle that they had and what they were doing. And, and when you would meet them at the thrift stores or yes. at the kind of places you were yeah. traveling around looking at. For some at. reason, uh, you know, I would go with them when they cleared out houses. or I just liked the vibe of being around them. And, and so I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I moved back to Atlanta because I still had a house here. I'd, I'd made it into a duplex and was renting out both sides told my uh, one of my tenants to leave and, and moved back into my house. And a friend of mine, uh, Peter Fellman, he gave me a, a warehouse that he had at really cheap rent um, in Atlanta. And, and uh, so I bought my first container of antiques and shipped it over here to Atlanta. And I literally opened up the phone book for A for antiques. I didn't know anybody. Uh, and I called every single antique dealer up in, in the yellow pages and said, I've got a container of antiques I just brought in from from France. You know, would you like to come and take a look at them? You know, I'm, I'm selling them. And, and, and people came and, 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 you know, people started buying antiques for me. Now, how did you figure out all the legal requirements of having to do that and exporting in the stuff in there? Were these your friends, your dealers helped with that? Or? They did. They did. But, you know, um, it's, not, it's not as difficult as you think. You get a, 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 a shipping broker and they handle all the paperwork and the customs and, <coughs> and, and all of that for you. It's, it's really not that difficult um, of a process to, to get things back. You don't have to know it all, do you? You just you have to find somebody else who does. Find someone, someone that is... Uh, you have the money to pay them. Yeah, is smarter than me, which is everybody. But um, So, yeah, so I started selling antiques, and, and um, you know, I think, I think I lost a little bit of money the first container. The second container lost a little less. Third container lost a little less. I think it was the fourth container that um, I started breaking even. And it wasn't because... You know, I was I would buy something and, and not be able to sell it or had to sell it for less than I paid for it. It just took a long time. I didn't have, you know, a network of buyers, you know, so I had a certain amount of expenses, not many. But uh, there were times where, you know, I was like, damn, I got to sell this table to eat today. You know, it was it was uh, it, it, you just didn't turn the antiques fast enough. Had you given yourself a timeline? To say, all right, I'm going to try this for a year and it works? I or didn't. Or we just like... No, there was no plan B. I, I think that's wise in a, in a lot of circumstances. There was, really there, was, there was no plan B. But at that time, um, you know, I thought, what can I do to kind of supplement my income? <laughs> and, of course, the, uh, the logical, uh, you know, idea at the time was illegal, you know, and then that's, that's what I chose, you know. But so we just started having raves, you know, we started, I started doing these raves and art parties in my warehouse and they were epic. I mean, they were, so I had this warehouse full of kind of crazy, cool antiques, you know, and, and so we started having parties and we, it was called Gallery A13 and it was right next to a, a place called the Idrum, which was kind of an experimental performing arts warehouse type theater. And, and so we would have raves and parties and, and I mean, uh, my friend Freddie Bench was starting Sweetwater Brewery at the time. And so he basically said, um, you know, I'll give you all the beer for free. I just want Sweetwater banners pat plastered all over the place. So I said, okay. Can do. We had no liquor license. We had no occupancy license. So I would put signs on the bar that said, recommended donation, $4 for a beer. And we get 800 people to show up at these things. You know, we had, we had uh, this, this one party that was famous called the Erotic Art Party. And I would get like street urchins, like street artists, like kids 
to to submit art and it had to be erotic in nature and it could be anything yeah and they would bring it to these parties then we put it up on the wall and i would say listen if this sells for a hundred dollars i'm going to give you a hundred dollars i'm not going to take any commission if it sells you get a hundred percent but what i want you to bring is 10 friends and they all got a drink ah nice you know and and so we'd have you know, I think one of our parties we had 15, 1,600 people show up. Creative Loafing would say not only was that party the best party in Atlanta for this week, but they'd say it was like the best party in Atlanta. And we had one bathroom, <laughs> you know, that the girls could be in. And, you know, there'd be, there'd be 800 people there and they'd say, who, who is having this party? And they'd say, it's the guy with the plunger. And that was me. <laughs> All the guys had to go back by the railroad tracks in the back of the dock. Right. But it was, I would always walk around with a plunger and, and uh, have to clean up that bathroom after, after uh, all, all the girls. But so I could make maybe five, three, five thousand $5,000 cash. What are you charging at the door? Uh, nothing. It was free. It was only beer and wine. So where's the money? Oh, are they buying the beer and wine? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. And I basically kind of got beer and wine for free. So yeah. it was all profit, you know? So what, what makes a good rave? What makes a good party? Uh, well, in this type of environment, I don't know. This was so many years ago, like you know. But you know, it was just it was, it was fun. There was there was art involved. There was performance art. Um, it, it was. It, it's in a warehouse. It's in a neighborhood. It's off Martin Luther King. So it's in a neighborhood that that most of the people didn't go to very often. So there was an element of, although it was safe, you know, there was an element of. Oh, I could be it's killed. An adventure, yeah. I could be killed at any time being down here, you know, and and right. and, and you know, and and it wasn't. Uh, it was maybe four times a year, you know, um, and it, and it, it, they became events, you know, and and um, so we would do that, and you know that that might have been in the in the the first couple of years that might have been twenty thousand dollars cash like extra income, and and in, until I was able to get a following of people that you know, knew they could come to me to buy antiques. That was, that was plenty of money. That was gobs of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, so I, yeah, I supplement my income by having these, these, these parties. And, and I mean, Outcast would come. Elton John came. You oh, know, shit. Um, Faye Gold, which was the big art dealer at the time in, in Buckhead, she would come and pluck a couple artists, uh, you know, to become residents um, off, off things that she'd seen in the wall. We had some really talented people. There was this underground art movement at the time, you know, and they were starving, you know, and so if they could make a painting for and sell it for three hundred dollars, it was great. And they wanted all their friends to see that they had a painting on the wall. So it was there was just a lot of excitement about these these parties, but um, they became dangerous, you know. There was too too many people taking too many drugs and driving their cars, you know, off off the ramps and. We had no security, you know. I mean, nothing. You What's know? the cra- can you can, tell me something crazy that happened that you can remember? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I remember, I remember, like going out the back of the the warehouse, and you know, we'd have like crates set up out there and stuff like that, and you'd have to kind of, if you were a guy, you'd have to go out there to go to the bathroom, and there was this huge long lo- loading dock, and and you'd go out there, and I'm not kidding you, you'd, there'd be 20 people having sex out there. Oh my god! <laughs> it was just like this, this crazy. You'd go out there and and 
I mean, everyone was hiding behind boxes and, and yeah. Phew, I mean, it was, it was just, um, you know, it was just nuts. I, it never came off the rails, but it, it, eventually thank god i didn't uh, the antique business took off and i didn't need that for income so it was just this fun time in my life but um you know i think two or three more parties and something probably bad would have happened right you pulled the plug just just at the right time it sounds like exactly exactly uh do you think if there hadn't been that merger and you hadn't you know been kind of set up in that situation that you would be doing what you're doing now was this something that you think is inevitable? Well, I think probably I would always kind of owned my own business. But, I, you know, when you were the, the, the biggest killer of owning your own business, in my opinion, is, is when you start to get comfortable. You know, and I was comfortable in that job, you know, but I'd probably, you know, learned everything that I was going to learn in that job. And I'd probably been there, you know, a year too long, but I would have been there three more years. Four more years, you know, I, I was just shocked into you got to find something different to do <laughs> right now. Right. You know, and, and so I look back, you know, and, and, and people people say this a lot. You know, I look back and getting fired or getting let go. You know, I mean, it probably was one of the better things that ever happened to me. I mean, people say that a lot, but in my case, it's true, you know, because I was having so much fun and I was comfortable, but I wasn't growing. You know, and, and and unless you're green and growing, you're dead and dying. So, so uh, it, it was it was good for me to, to to shake myself out of that comfortable situation and 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 make me go in a more uh, terrifying situation. Unless you're green and growing, you're what is it? Dead what? and dying. You're dead and dying. Oh, God, I love that. <laughs> um, what was Love Train? So when I started the business, it was Love Train Antiques, um, okay. and that was the name of the business. And and talk about the name. Well, I was trying to think of a name for a, for a antique company and you know an export uh, import company. And and I don't know. I heard that song by the OJ's. You know, that come on aboard. It's the Love, love train. train. And I thought Love Train, that's kind of a catchy name, and people will uh, people will remember it. So um, so yeah, the first company I started was was Love Train Antiques. And uh, I did that for, um, well, I, I, I'm still doing that. So that's 21 years. But um, so I, uh, I started at the Scott Antique Market, which is a big a- antique market here in Atlanta. And I started with one booth and I moved to two. And then I moved to, uh, eventually, I think I had 24 booths. I was one of the biggest dealers at the Scott Market. And then um, I bought a building next to the Scott Market and made that my... Uh, my operation, um, and I was, you know, bringing in containers direct from Europe and putting them in that building, and and I was right, basically in the parking lot of the Scott Antique Market. That's kind of perfect. I it was imagine. perfect. It was perfect. You know, and and the guy who, uh, who I bought the building with is Don Scott, who who uh, you know owns the Scott Market, and you know I'd been there for a number of years and never met him, and and he called me up one time, and this is Don Scott, and it's like the guy that owns this whole, you know, antique fair. And he lived in Ohio. And, 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 and I said, uh, what can I do for you? And he said, there's a building that's in my parking lot that's for sale. I don't want it to be a gasoline station or a strip club or a liquor store. I need you to buy it and I'll help you with it. Um, and I said, why me? We've never talked, you know? And he said, you know, I've seen, you know, people tell me, you know, I, all these 
antique dealers, I have problems with all of them. You know, never has your name been mentioned one time, you know, in any kind of there's a problem with you. And he said, you've gone from one booth to like 24. You're the fastest growing dealer I have here. You're the obvious choice. And so I said, well, okay, let's buy this building. Thank you. So I did. And, and that turned out to be good. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, again, perfect location. I, I, I love that whole yeah. Scott Market and yeah. Great Fried Catfish. Uh, one of the vendors huh, in there. I know that. Yeah, my, uh, my wife's aunt goes there often. And, okay. And I've been there with her and had some amazing catfish. What, so what were you doing right that other people at that mart weren't doing well like why you know, did, why how were you able to grow so quickly you know the the biggest thing i think was um i was going and getting antiques myself i was digging around barns finding things i could make a lot of mistakes because back then it was still the um belgian and french franc and and, and the currency rate was good um so I would bring everything back and, and just kind of see what sold and what didn't. And then what did sold, I'd try to find more. But more than anything else, uh, I had stories. And stories are what sell antiques. And I was the one going over there and getting it. So I tell people all this time, you know, I, I've got plenty of stories and some of them are true. I was, <laughs> I, that's the first thing I thought of. You know? like, <laughs> but, you know... Uh, nobody needs a coffee table. Nobody needs an ambois. Nobody needs a, you know, a French country uh, dining table. Right. But they would come into my store and they would be looking at this dining table. And if they said, you know, how much is this? They're going home with it. Because I would have a story to tell them uh, that made them want to buy it. Right. You know, I would say... This table, you know, it's twelve ninety five. But you know, this table comes from Ophain, Belgium. That's a town about twenty kilometers, you know, uh, north of the French border. And I went into this house, and this was in their kitchen. And the grandmother said that it had been in this house for as long as she could remember, and she was like ninety, you know. And I would draw a map, and I would say, "This is the town it's from. You can look it up on any map." And uh, all that was true. You know, or I pulled this out of a barn or, you know, this this guy, was it was a gypsy with a bunch of stuff and he was looking around real quick and said I had to buy everything fast, you know, so I don't really know where it is. It's probably stolen from some house, you know, but, the, you know, so they're not buying a coffee table. They're buying a story that they can share with their neighbors when the neighbors come over and say, oh, you got a new coffee table. That's what they're paying for is a story to say to their neighbors. And the elements of the story they're looking for is someplace exotic that they haven't been. Right. The, are they looking? What else are they looking for? Well, you like know. What makes the perfect. A perfect story. Perfect story for somebody. You know, true or untrue. It doesn't matter. Uh, the trials and tribulations of what you went through to get that piece, I you know, that. over here. Um, what its past life was. You know, I don't deal in provenance. Never have. I don't know what I, that means. Provenance means I could care less if it's Queen Anne or if it's Chippendale or, or it's Louis the Fourteenth or it's, you know, Louis Philippe, or, you know, or if it's uh, Tiffany, you name it. It doesn't matter to me. What, what I buy is things that 
have had previous lives. You know, maybe it was in a factory, maybe it was in a bank, a school, a bistro, a pub, you know, a, a castle. It was in someone's home. When when you start to uh, talk about the life that that piece might have had, you know, where it was, who was using it, where you found it, those are the stories that resonate. Not that it's Louis Philippe and it's 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 eighteen you know seventy eight. I, I could care less about that. Yeah, you know, it's 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 the it's the the juicy stuff. And, and in fact, uh, uh, the French have a great saying when when uh, when they see um, an antique that that looks right, it has the right wear in the right places. They say "c'est arjou," which which means uh, arjou means with juice, like when you have a, a French dip au jus. Yep. So the French say that that piece is steeped in its own juices. Uh, it's been cooking long enough. It's, it's been, ready, it's it's been ready cooking, to go. Yeah, so they say, ah, c'est très au jus. And so uh, I, I buy pieces that tend to be au jus. I like to see, you know, the the, the passage of time on the piece. Um, that's what's interesting to me. That's what the, the piece is telling you a story. I'm not interested in buying a, a, a perfectly, you know, mint uh, Louis the Sixteenth cabinet. That's that's not doesn't resonate with me. Yeah, doesn't like hold any interest. That are au jus. Um, if you're having, did you? How did you find your people to help you work the booths? Because clearly, you know, you can't man that many booths at one time. Or can you? Is that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I did. You know, um, for the most part, for many years, I, I did. Um, one time there was a there was a guy that kind of bought some antiques from me. He was an interior designer. Uh, his name was Maroon, and I haven't thought of him in a long time. But um, he uh, he was a gay guy. Uh, nice, you know. He, he had an interesting eye, and so I took him over to France with me. And I was walking through houses and warehouses, and he would see a chair, and he'd say, "You need to buy this chair." And I would look at the chair and I'd be like, oh, that is not my taste. That is not, you know, that is not uh, something that would come across my register at all. And he's like, I'm telling you, you buy this chair. And so I'd start buying stuff that, you know, that he wanted. And damn if he wasn't right. No kidding. He was right. He had a, you know, he had a, he had an eye for, for what a gay man or a gay decorator would like outside of my eye. Right. And, and so for many years, for like two years, um, him and I kind of, uh, you know, I would take him over there with me and he would buy for his design clients, but he would also tell me, you know, what to buy, what to buy for resale. And so for many years, uh, the first few years, maybe he helped me in the booth, you know, he would be in the booth helping me sell. And, uh, I haven't seen or talked to him in years, but, um, he, he would help me. But for the most part, it was just me. Who is, uh. Axel Vervoort, and I could have just destroyed that name. No, no, that's right. Why don't right. you pronounce it correctly for me? Axel Vervoort is uh, my design hero. I mean, he is a Belgian guy, um, and he uh, is is kind of known as the godfather of Belgian style. So when you say Belgian style or Belgian antiques, um, th- there's a look to it. Um it's it's linens, it's wabi sabi, it's it's uh, it, and he is the top uh, interior designer and antique dealer in Belgium. Um, I've sold him several pieces, but now he's coming. He did the um, 
he did the Greenwich Hotel, the suite, uh, Robert De Niro's hotel. And, uh, but it's very understated, but very powerful, uh, perfect. He's, he has a lot of books out there. He's doing Jay-Z and Beyonce's house right now. Um, he, he is, uh, in the antique circles in the Belgian interior inspired in, you know, design community, Axel Vervoort is, uh, it starts and stops with him. He's the best that there ever was. So what do you, what do you like about his work? It's simple. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, he, he could, he could, you know, he finds like crate, like a crushed door, uh, you know, or something with just perfect patina, uh, he calls it wabi sabi, which means perfect and perfect. So he, he's just looking for patina and shading, and it doesn't matter what it is. It can be, you know, something that's broken, and he'll put it on a wall, and it'll be the best piece of art that you've ever seen in your life, you know. And 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 that's the way he he decorates, you know, um, a lot of muted tones, a lot of uh, um, linens, uh, you know. He, he designs with open space in mind, the negative space. Um, I've always been an admirer of him, and and uh, he's the best. I'm I'm hesitant to read this quote since uh, my your only childhood is uh, oh, yeah, yeah. was complete bullshit. Uh, I read that you said, uh, "Good color, good patina, good lines, or something I'd like to have in my own home is your criteria." Yes, is that still true? And it is, it is. You know, I mean, again, you know it. It doesn't have to be a provenance piece, you know. If it's if the scale is correct on it, and and the, the texture and and you know the the way the piece looks, you know, I don't care if it's from the 1980s or the 1880s or the 1580s, you know, you you buy it. And the other part of that quote was, "Don't follow designers or trends; you get yourself into trouble." True. What that's, do you mean by that? Well, that's true. It's it's um, one of the things that that I've never done is um, I, I've been fortunate enough. People say, you know, it's it's an eye. I'm not so sure about that, but I just buy kind of everything that I like, you know, and 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 bring it back. And I've been fortunate enough that other people like the same things. Where you get into trouble is a lot of times interior designers or customers will, will say, um, I need, I need silver gilded mirrors, you know, or I need bamboo, um, bedroom sets, you know, or I need tramp art mirrors or whatever. And, and they give you the shopping list of, of things that, uh, what's coming around the bend, you know, what are, what are, what's hot right now? You know, what, what are they, what do they want? What are they looking for? And so you go and you, your eye tends to focus on looking for those things. Mm. So you, you have a more laser focus. And so you miss some of the other stuff laying around in the corners. Plus, when you start to buy that stuff and bring it back, you know, they've told that to other people. So there's more of that in the market. And by the time you bring it back, they not, might not be interested in it anymore. Right. And you have something then you're not passionate about. No. So, so, so you, you don't want to fall into that trap where you're trying to find things because they're hot or someone wants you to find it for them, you know, or it's, uh, you know, it's the upcoming trend that's, that's everyone's going to want next year. You just buy the things that, that, that you run into that you like and you think are cool and hope that you're fortunate enough that other people think they're cool as well. What came first for you? The, Starting to design different spaces, or people approach you about designing kind of their 
you know, either commercial or residential space, or did the manufacturing of your own items inspired by the antiques you were found? Which one kind of was the next step in the business? The Bobo, the manufacturing. And I, and I don't really do design. Um, you know, I, I have for some friends and, and, and made some suggestions, um, but th- that's not what I do. Okay. Um, um, but, you know, so I was seven, eight years as an antique dealer. And then I had the other life-changing event, and uh, this happens to a lot of people. Uh, I fell in love, and I got married, and I had a child, right? That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing, but that's a life-changing event, right? And, and you know, my wife and I, for a couple years, she'd go on every buying trip with me, or a lot of them, and we traveled the world, and and it was bliss. I mean, it was, it was crazy fun. Um, but then you have a child, right? And... It's not so fun, you know, having me travel two weeks out of every month finding antiques when my wife is at home alone with the screaming kid. Completely. <laughs> you know, that's... <laughs> not, a, not a quite a fair it, division of know, labor. Well, maybe it works for some people. God bless them. It doesn't work for my wife, you know. Right. So so, uh, so I was in a situation, you know, there is an iron ceiling when you're do, doing antiques. If, if this microphone is an antique and I sell it to you, it's gone forever. I have to go and find another one to sell. Right. You know, so you're always on the hunt. You're always searching. You, you have to. You have to replenish your stock. So it's not, uh, it's not a business that you can scale, right? And it's a business where you have to travel a lot. And I was not in a position to do that any longer. So I said, well, let's make antiques you know, as close as we can. Where did you get the idea? We uh, had a had a factory. Uh, well, we had a small, uh, there was a small place in, in Belgium that would restore my antiques. You know, I would have them restored in, in Belgium and then brought back here perfect. And all the workers that were restoring antiques were, Poland, were from Poland. And um, I had a partner at the time, uh, he was a picker of mine and he uh he also ran this kind of place that did the did the restore the antiques and he said let's go to poland all these people come from the same town in poland and they make furniture and and i will go there and we'll start making antiques and start this new business and so we did that and and that's how bobo started um we started making uh, antiques or making furniture as close as we could, you know, to antiques and, and, you know, it's, um, that's my magic secret, I think for Bobo in that, uh, it, there's a lot written about me on the internet about, you know, t- you know, top 30 most influential designers and stuff I've done for restoration hardware and design work I've done. But if there's a, if there's a magic trick and there is, uh, I just really listen and watch what people way more talented than me buy. You know, when I bring in a bunch of antiques, um, I have really talented interior designers and antique dealers and store owners come in from New York and Chicago and Miami and Houston and L.A., right? And they come to see what I've brought now on the antique side. 
and I see what they buy. And, you know, if, if, if a person from New York and a person from LA come in there in a fist fight over the same chair, like it doesn't take a genius to say, huh, why don't I make that chair? You know, and so it was born in, you know, boy, if I had 50 of these chairs, I could sell 50, but I only have one because it's an antique, right? So let's make these chairs. So we started. You got your own market testing right built right into your my, business. Yeah, and I'm the only one that does that really. That, that Maybe not the only one, but close to the only one. And so so we started making antiques or, or reproducing antiques as best we could, trying to keep the old patina, the old craftsmanship um, the old way of, of making things. And, and so, you know, we started Bobo, I guess, 13 years ago is all. Um, a small booth at the Atlanta uh, Gift Mart, the America's Mart. And, um, and I think we started that booth with maybe 17 products. Do you remember what they were, or not all of them? Obviously, yeah, there was a couple of lights. The there was yeah, there's there's still four of them I think that are still in the line: a bookshelf, uh, a coffee table, a couple of lights, an armoire. Um, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big assortment, but um, but it was cool, you know. And and so we we started, and and it just has grown and grown and grown, um, you know. From there, um, I I had. Uh, been in business for about three years. Uh, we were we were growing quite a bit, and um, restoration hardware uh, had come uh, stumbled into my my booth in High Point, North Carolina. I have a, a building there now, and um, you know uh, Gary Friedman, who's the CEO of Restoration Hardware, he was trying to figure out a new direction to take the company's aesthetic, and uh, came into our booth and just kind of fell in love, you know, and, and so, you know, we started making, um, private label things for restoration hardware and that advanced the business, uh, again, again, quite a bit. And that uh, had to be, I would imagine a huge, a huge thing for the business. It was, it was the recession, you know, so that was 98, 99, something like that. And, and, um, so they came in and, and, you know, and, and may have saved the company, I don't know. It was good timing or bad timing. You know, I owe restoration of hardware a lot. And, and I think Gary Friedman is kind of like a genius, you know, um, the way he thinks about, you know, disrupting the, the retail industry. But, um, you know, they made me kind of the cover boy, uh, golden designers. I was on the cover of the catalog, my picture, um, and some things that I'd made that they sent out six million copies or something like that, and there were pictures of me in every restoration hardware, big banners and posters, and and so when restoration hardware came in, the mom and pops that had bought with me, they dropped off, and I wasn't sure if it was because of the recession or restoration hardware, but having that much exposure was a good thing and a bad thing, you know. And one of my customers said. Uh, that stopped buying with me, um, told me that, um, what did they say? They said, it's like you are our favorite band. And as soon as we heard you on the radio, we don't like you anymore. That's, ex that's exactly the analogy that was in my head. You know, and, and so there is something to that, you know, now, now since then, 
you know, um, Bobo has Bobo has been growing outside of restoration hardware quite a bit, and 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 the customers have certainly come back just because I think our assortment is more unique than most people, and and, and still priced at, at a point where they can put it in their stores and make money on it. It's, right. It turns, so um, you know that that brings them back. Got right? a little, hopefully, a little street cred back again as well. Right, um, but. Um, yeah, to this day, I still, almost everything that I design, you know, uh, I have the antique piece, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's a situation where, man, if I had more of these, I could sell more of these. So, so now we, we have about 800 pieces in our line that we make, um, and we make them in uh, nine different countries, I think 39 different factories. And we do um, trade shows in Las Vegas and High Point and in Texas and in uh, Atlanta. And so we have, you know, I think I don't know, 700 active, you know, customers that carry the Bobo line. Um, so we, we sell it to Sundance Catalog. We sell it to um, our house. We sell it to Restoration Hardware. We have some, some major accounts. Um, but it's grown into, uh, into a, uh, a, a quite a good business. Uh, tell people what Bobo stands for and tell me where you got the name. And- Bobo. Bobo stands for Bourgeoisie Bohème. And uh, it's what uh, a moniker, um, you know, people use in France. They say, oh, you're a real Bobo. And that means, you know, they know you have money from some kind of artistic endeavor, but you choose to, uh, you know, I show up in, you know, an old pickup truck, you know, covered in dust, wearing overalls. You know, uh, hacking through fr- my French, you know, and, and so they're like, you're real bohemian, but we know you're bourgeoisie. So they say, oh, you're Bobo. And so uh, I thought it was a cool name. Uh, I mean, there are people in France that that uh, have no idea what my real name is. They just call me Bobo. And so when I'm at market sometimes and and uh, people will, uh, uh, you know, quite often I'll hear, hey, Bobo, you know, and turn around now because it's it's a name that that. Uh, uh, people connect with me in France. That's that's pretty great. Bobo, yeah. I kind of love that. Uh, what has been the biggest obstacle to y'all's growth? When you're, is it trying to find other people to make these? Um, they're not reproductions or originals, but uh, well, the you know, reproductions. You know, we don't use the, that word very often, but um, you know, I mean, you know, when I first started, we made a lot of things in Belgium and and. Um, you know, when Restoration Hardware came, you don't have factories in Belgium that can scale. You know, Restoration Hardware needs 400 tables, you know, and, uh, you know. So we, we had to move production into not third world countries, but we, we moved production to um, outside of Poland and Belgium and, and, and Europe. We moved it to uh, India and Vietnam and China where labor is much cheaper. And, and uh, so I had to go to those countries to get the price right, to get the quality right, because the quality is still extremely good. And um, so we started making things in those countries, and, and those countries are a long ways away. So, you know, th- that's sometimes difficult. I'm in a different country every, every month. Um, and, and uh, you know, th- there's, there's certainly challenges with dealing with the Chinese and the Vietnamese and the, uh, and the Indian, um, you know, cultures, but it's also, 
what I love again. It's also, I like kind of, uh, you know, seeing those obstacles and figuring ways around them. Right. Uh, you've been extremely generous with your time and I'm, <laughs> I'm having a ball and I got a thousand other questions I could ask, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, no problem. Um, I want to ask you a few questions that I usually ask kind of most of, uh, most of my guests and I may sprinkle in some, uh, some other ones too. Yeah, right. Actually, before we get to the perennial questions, I do want to, uh, ask you a little bit about, uh, circus paraphernalia, motorcycles and religious Santos. Yeah. Those are things that, uh, you know, I buy, um, because I think they're going to sell and they never sell. So I end up collecting them. <laughs> yeah. I collect, I collect gobs. And as you quite would imagine, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you buy things cause you like them personally and they just never sell, right. but you're addicted to them. So, so, uh, you know, when, when I have something that I love and three months goes by and no one even asked me the price, I'm always like, fuck it. I'll just take it home. You know, and so <laughs> you have these kind of collections you know, around that are there because no one bought them. And, and I like things from circuses, you know, like just anything from a circus or strongman stuff, you know, carnival stuff. I like that. Religious Santoses, I go to, uh, I buy a lot of things out of churches. And I, I'm not a religious person per se, but I like the the iconography of it, you know, statues and, and, and all of that. So I've got, you know, hundreds of those laying around. Um yeah old motorcycles i'm i ride old motorcycles i'm a sucker for anything vintage anything that will break down on you and it's a pain in the ass i buy you're all for it yeah uh what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to kind of do what you're doing but on a you know you know obviously starting on a much smaller scale they wanted to play around with importing and exporting you know antiques or something Mm, what would they what would you what could you tell them that would save them some pain Ooh, on the antique side, I don't know that I would rec- – it, it, it takes a special person, that's for sure. I, I think everybody thinks that they can do it. Maybe one in a thousand you know, can, can do it. It's not, it's not an easy business to break into. But a lot of people that are designing furniture, you know, I give the advice to look at the past. You know, and, and I think that anything that's done now was done better 100 years ago. I tell I tell design students, you know, go to flea markets, you know, and antique fairs and junk shops and and generate ideas from there. Like if you're looking for packaging, you know, just the way the packages looked, they were better 50 years ago. They were better 100 years ago. The typography was better. The way they presented their products, you know, um, uh, just everything was better and, and and you're going to you're going to generate ideas from seeing you know how they made products a hundred years ago because things that are made today are worse in my opinion why is that I don't know I mean you know it was it was uh I don't know I don't know why you know I think people put less less time into into the packaging, you know, and, and, you know, they, they want to make a product and put it on the internet and sell it. You know, it's more of a, of a linear process now. And I think that, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, it was, you know, a bar of soap wrapped in string and parchment paper in a hardware store, you know, and it was like a precious thing. Right. You know, and now a lot of things are just commodities. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about your team here. 
Uh, the bios on the website yeah. are great. <laughs> I love that okay. you know that you get a little bit of sense of personality from everybody. But how did you assemble your team now, and and what what are you doing to keep them? Um, you know, I think we have uh, I don't know how many employees we have, but um, a lot of them have been with me for a, for a long time, and and you know I, I think I'm a a pretty good boss. You know I, I'm I'm. I respect that they have lives outside of Bobo and if they need days off or they need to leave early or, you know, we, we try to make it fun. Everybody's got a role that they, that they need to do and, and certainly a, a job that they need to fulfill. But, um, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not too rigid here. It's, it's, um, you know, you, you, you have a role to play, but there, it's a low pressure situation, I think. Um, here at Bobo and, and, uh, I've got a really good team. I've got, I've got, you know, people that have been with me for, for a long time. Um, and, uh, someone once said, and I think it's true. If I even look back, I don't have a single male Caucasian employee. I think I have 55 employees. If you count the ones overseas, it's all women and minorities, I think, yeah, that's the case. Yeah, I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why, but I have a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, women and minorities that, that work for me, and it's it's fantastic. I love that. Um, so you're generally this. We're a wholesale generally. Correct. A few weekends a year, you open up the warehouse here in Atlanta. Yeah. For people to look at through. Yep. Yep. Once or twice a year, we have these big kind of. Um, you know, uh, blowout wholesale, um, sales here at the, at the, I have a hundred thousand square foot warehouse in Atlanta and we open the doors to the public. And, um, so we sell a lot of showroom samples, you know, things that we used, you know, in our showrooms, open box, um, limited quantity, end of stock, scratch and dent, all that kind of stuff. And so the, the, the public can come in and buy and, and, you know, usually it's, it's, uh, you know, wholesale price or below. So we get, um, we get a lot of people through on those weekends. So something not to miss. That's right. And you have one retail location, correct? Or is that one retail location? It's in HDB, HD buttercup store in Culver city, uh, California. And it's our only retail, um, store. And that's, uh, all the way in, in LA. What was the impetus to open up a retail store in YLA? Nah, because we don't, you know, have uh, very many customers in LA. You know, the the if I open up a retail store, um, you know, it, it I'm a wholesaler, so I'm selling things to stores so they can make money on the goods that they buy from me. If I go open up a retail store in their town, it cuts the knees off the bread and butter, the people that you know have supported me and are buying from me. That makes sense in LA. We there, there's no stores in LA. It's it's odd. LA is a different beast. You know, it's 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 a, mostly an interior designer driven, um, you know, city. So if you want something for your house, you hire an interior designer to go to a store to get it. So uh, you know, it's it's a million miles away. Uh, we didn't have a bunch of competition there. We didn't have a lot of stores in LA carrying our product for whatever reason. So that's where we went. And how is it going? It's going good. I mean, you know, it's it's um, the the retail uh, the retail is is interesting. It's it, it it is. These are strange times for retail, 
But uh, we've been there for four years, which is a success. Um, but uh, we sell uh, X amount per month. And it's been the same our first month to our 40th month. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's just as consistent as you could possibly be. We do we do this much out, out of out of the store a month. And it's, it's only um, 2,000 square feet. So it's a fairly small, small store. But, but uh, it's profitable. It cash flows. But it's just it is what it is, you know. But it's a million miles away. So it, it, you know, I've got the, the greatest manager out there that runs that store. But it's a little bit uh, – it, it doesn't seem like it, I give it the priority that it deserves all the time because it's so far away. I got you. All right, let's get to the perennials. Uh, all right. We'll get you out of here. Uh, do you have a favorite failure? A favorite. I mean, you've had some uh, failure. You have, you've had some. I would, what would say bad luck with the merger and the job ending, but it ended up being great luck. Yeah, you know, of course. But uh, do you have something along those lines? That's something that was a failure at one point, and then you've managed to turn it around, or or not? Not, not every failure goes goes the right direction with perspective. Yeah, I can't think of. I mean, I've had okay. a, a, you know a, a lot of failures on an individual basis. I had a a failure with a with a um, with a business partner uh, that I that I was involved in with Bobo, and that 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 still is uh, is a is a hard thing to talk about, and and it, and it stings for me. But um, you know, a lot of things. Every, every time you buy something on an antique level, or every time you design something on a, on a new level, you know, it's a gamble. You know, there are things that I've bought that I thought, oh, my God, this is going to sell. There'll be fistfights for it right off the back of the truck. And three months later, I still have it, you know. And there'll be things that I, I that comes in and I'm like, oh, was I drunk when I bought that? That's horrible, right? And it sells right away. So so you never know. But it's in this business, it's, it's, um, it's kind of all about failure. If I design 10 products, right, three will be fantastic sell way better than you know you thought they would and three more will be middle of the road some people liked it some people didn't sales were about what you expected and the other four products were complete disasters like you know no one they didn't resonate with anybody you know so really i'm only you know i i i hit three out of ten but still you can work right those three continue on and you do another ten and so you're just you're, you're failing all the time, but you can do that and still make it work. Do uh, any of the ones that you thought were going to be home runs that weren't? That you, are any of those come to mind immediately? And they, they may not. But I'd be curious. What <laughs> I'd be curious if you if you do have one, what it would be? Yeah, I, you know, I, I did a I did a full uh, line of kind of more modern things, acrylic out of Brazil. I thought it was executed perfectly, and and and. Um, you know, there was probably 15 pieces, you know, really only one resonated with, with, with people. And it was this acrylic bar stool and that's become a huge seller for us. You know, the rest of them, none of them ever really worked. So you know, it's kind of like the only thing we're doing out of Brazil now is this, is this bar stool, which doesn't get me down to Brazil. Um, that doesn't move the meter for me to go down and design new stuff, uh, which is unfortunate because, I like Brazil. I wish I could go down there <laughs> more, but uh, I can't. I can't make uh, the, the Brazilian aesthetic work uh, at all. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, do you have a favorite investment? And this could be, you know, investment in yourself, a class. It could be, you know, it could be just a straight money investment. Um, 
you know, open, open to interpretation that you've done. Yeah. I, you know, I, I always, I mean, this is a simple and probably not a great answer, but you know, I, I, I don't really invest in anything outside of myself, you know, um, you read a lot and you, you, you put money into your own business. And, and I mean, I have some, some real estate uh, that I invest in, but you know, most, most of the money that I invest, I keep in and around, you know, me and my business, Yeah. you know, and, and I think if you invest in yourself and education and in travel, those probably are the two best investments you can ever make. You mentioned at the beginning of the, of the conversation to some books that you had been reading, uh, was either in high school or college that, you know, uh, kind of inspired you or self-help. What do you read now to kind of stay inspired or to keep abreast of what's going on or what inspires you reading today? Or back then, like books that have books that have influenced you, either now or then. Um, you know, it, it was uh, I, I kind of read all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, you know, probably the ones that influenced me. You know, outside of like the self help books and things like that. Well, it doesn't have to be outside of those either. Yeah, I'm true. Curious what um, what those would be. Yeah, but be there's been so many of those that it's hard to even uh, even think. Yeah. Um, but I read all all kinds of stuff, you know. Ayn Rand probably, you know, influenced me early on reading The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, um, and uh, I don't know. I read a lot of Bukowski, <laughs> you know. It's just all, all over the board. And right now, I mean, you know, I I don't really read business books. I'll read self help books. I'll read gumshoe novels, detective novels, and uh, you know, historical fiction. I'm kind of, um, you know. Reading that right now, I'm reading um, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, going down to the Brazilian rainforest, uh, Cape of Despair, Hope of Despair, something like that. But um, yeah, cool. What would other people say your superpower is, and then what would you say your superpower is? I guess um, you know people people say, "Oh, he's just magic." You know, he just he just. Uh, you know, nothing bad happens to him. You know, I, I was always kind of the guy that was always causing the trouble, but never got caught, you know, and I'm the type of guy that can be in a, you know, if it was a fiery plane crash. You know, I'd be the guy walking out of the cornfield, brushing off my shirt, you know, in Iowa saying, well, what happened there? You know, so, but my superpower, I think maybe is that, that, that and I've heard this before, but I, I tell people that I have reverse paranoia. Tell me what that means. That means I kind of truly believe that the universe is conspiring to help me. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I kind of go through life like that, and it's almost like a superpower. You know, I kind of really believe it, you know, yeah. that that just like, and sometimes when you get burned, you really get burned. But I really, truly believe like the people that I meet and you know, the people that come into my life, they're there like to make it better. Like they're there to help me. Right. And, and, and like the universe is just conspiring, you know, in some way to, to make things better for me. I love that. And I, I don't think people go through life like that. I don't think a lot of people do. I, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, what would you say your kryptonite is or maybe something that you're working on uh, for yourself? Uh, kryptonite. I don't know. Um, pinball machines, cigars, <laughs> um, bourbon, damsels in distress. You know, all of those, uh, I guess, are uh, are kryptonite. But, um, you know, I, I have to be a little bit better at, um, you know, and I hate to say this, but, uh, 
you know, so, sometimes you when you 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 can trust people too much. I always think people are out there to help help you. You know, like I, until you do something different, that's the that's the way I feel. So I mean, sometimes sometimes certainly th- there are people that will take advantage of you, and you'll get burned in a lot of s- situations. But right. you know, you, you get burned, but it's 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 not worth the 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 other way of going around thinking being suspicious of everybody. Yeah, you know. So yeah. tell me about your uh, tell me about like an ideal Saturday. This could be involve work and not involve work, but take me through like a a perfect Mark Sage day. You know, it would be it would be you know friends or family. You know, I've got three boys that are uh, fourteen, twelve, and ten, and and you know, j- just hanging out with them and wrestling and goofing off and w- with the family with my wife. We have a we have a cabin uh, about an hour and a half from here. Uh, it's a series of cabins. It's got a river that runs through it in LLJ, Georgia, and and we go up there and and. Uh, you know, that's kind of like my perfect Saturday is to go up there with the boys and they've got a go-kart and a go-kart track and, and we go out in the woods and we I have a dog named Flapjack at Lab and and then, um, you know, messing around in the woods in the stream and, and coming back and, you know, a big bonfire in the fire pit and a, and, a, and a bourbon and watching the stars overhead at night. I mean, we do that, we do that quite a bit and... Uh, then, then days out with friends. I'm fortunate, you know. I have a, I have a picture, and it, it was, it'd be one of those. If your house was burning, what would you take? I have a picture that is me on my graduation day from high school, you know, and it's 17 of us. It was our crew, you know, in high school, and we all got our cap and gown on, and we took a picture. And to this day, and I graduated in 1992, so that's 37 years ago, something like that. Um, to this day, of those 17 uh, people, I see 15 of them every year. And I talk to all those 15 or text them or email them every week. You know, we, we are play fantasy sports together. We get together every year. Every other year, we have a huge reunion where we all come, and it's super important. So spending time with those guys, you know, uh, most people that graduate high school might be lucky to have one friend that they still stay in contact with, maybe a couple. You know, these guys have known me since, you know, I I was in, in seventh grade, so I was 13 years old. So getting together with those guys, it's fantastic because we just lie to each other, but we know we're lying, right? right. You know, the, the girls we dated were much better looking and we were much better at sports, you know? And so oh, we, just, yeah. we play cards and we drink bourbon and we shoot the shit and we play golf together. And, and that's another good Saturday. Uh, what's your go-to bourbon? I like Blanton's. Blanton's is, uh, is kind of the, uh, you know, the first one that I go to. What, uh, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less or right around there has, uh, had the most, uh, impact on your life recently, and this is equate. This is a straight stealing a question from Tim Ferriss. So apologies, Tim. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think we live in an incredibly cool time. You know, I mean, there there are things that don't cost a lot of money that have like changed my life. You know, Nespresso machines. I think you know. I mean, it's fantastic. You can get every morning. 
you can get a almost a perfect cup of espresso, you know, in a pod. There's no cleanup. You this just, is the uh, Nest Brothers. This is the, 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 the Nest Espresso thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They're fantastic. All right. You know, um, and uh, you know, it's just there's there's a lot of things now. I just think it's the the most exciting time in the world to live right now, just because, you know, your phone and your technology and and you know, you can listen to, you know any piece of music written by anybody at any time, it just comes on your ear, you know? So I, I guess there's, there's, um, I don't know if I answered your question, but no, uh, I think so. there's yeah. a lot of things that, that, that don't cost gobs of money that, that affect your life positively right now. What's something you love that most people don't appreciate? And you may have already covered this earlier with, uh, talking about some of the things we've already mentioned, but um, what's something that I love that most people, well, you know, you saw, you saw, um, behind my office, I collect pinball machines and I love pinball machines. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of growing up, you know, that's, that's, uh, that was my babysitter growing up. I grew up in an era before video games. My kids play video games right now. I just can't get into it. But when I grew up, you know, my mom would give me like $2 worth of quarters and drop me off at the arcade where all my buddies were yeah and she'd say okay i'll come back in five hours to pick you up that's amazing it was like the cheapest babysitting and so we'd play pinball and you had to get good at these pinball machines you know you put in your quarter yeah your money would run out too fast so so now i collect pinball machines and and um i play them every day you know uh i I come in and i go to the nespresso machine and i have my cup of coffee and and uh the pinball machine starts and they hear the bells and whistles and kind of the Everyone around the office knows that, uh, you know, as soon as the bells and whistles stop, then they can come in and, and <laughs> yeah. start telling me what fires I need to put out that right, day. Right, like, that's a that's that's a good way I start my day. What's your morning warm up? Yeah, uh, is pinball luck or skill or both? That's skill. Like, that's what I thought. There's, there's, it's, it's a, <laughs> I expected that. One hundred percent skill. Outstanding. Uh, so, what what bad advice do you hear either within like the business community or importing exporting or parenting or what do you hear where that your hackles kind of like oh that's 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 not right that's not smart who um I should have prepared for these uh, no, no, these no. questions or surprises. I don't know. I mean, I think we I think we talked a, a lot about it. I think that some people try to start businesses that um, might tailor to a niche that someone wants, and that's kind of bad advice. You know, I I, I think that. You gotta you gotta come up with something that resonates with you, and and that maybe isn't out there right now, and then hope to find a customer base for it. Because if I would have started a business to say, okay, there's people need silver gilded mirrors and and, and bamboo furniture, right? And I go out and find that, I'd have been bankrupt before I started. Right. You know. So sometimes when people tell you um, what it is they want, and can you go out and you know, start a business to find that kind of stuff. It doesn't work, you know. And sometimes I think, you know, a lot of businesses, unfortunately, might have been might be started that way. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you would have uh, quotes or goals kind of on your door when you're in the fraternity. Yeah. Uh, is there a quote that still inspires you now that you have? And and do you still put kind of goals or things up on where you can see them and write them down? I do. Yeah. We yeah. Just, uh, Tell me, tell me a little bit about something that still gets you going. 
Um, I mean, my, my computer right now and all my desk is filled with, uh, you know, filled with, with, with quotes. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a big one above, uh, my computer screen. Um, and it says, uh, today I will judge nothing. Oh, wow. And that's interesting. What you does know? that mean for you? It means that, um, I think too many people, uh, you know, see a person and immediately make a judgment as to, can that person help me? Is that person dangerous? Is that, it happens in seconds, right? And, and you miss out on so much opportunity and so much possibility because you're just too busy. It's like in your DNA that you're trying to judge people all the time. And so, you know, w- w- with situations that come up, you know, I always say, I'm not interested, you know, in who's right. I'm interested in what's right. You know, I don't want to, I always cut people off when they're, well, she did this or she did that or he did this, you know, because, because uh, I think it's a lot of waste of time. So, you know, today I will judge nothing. And, and there's one also on my computer um, that I put up that says, uh, uh, growing old is um, less than, a, less the accumulation of years and more the accumulation of things I know. Mm. I like that. You know, I mean, so I, I know that I don't know anything. You know, I mean, th- there's another country to explore. There's there's another businesses to start or run. There's there, there's um, I think I think people tend to grow old because they think I know everything. You know, and and the only way to, to kind of stay young and green and growing, as I say, is, is, is to know that you don't know anything. And, and I know that, right. I really do. Um, so I try not to let, you know, things I know accumulate, you know, yeah. in, in your head and, um, put new stuff in there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I always say to my friends, sometimes I say this, I say, there's no taking stock. That's like a big rule in my life, you know. You can't. I, I just think it's a little bit. What do you mean by that? You know, it's, people take stock in their lives to say, "Oh, you know, I, I, I back then I was happy that I did this, or I was happy that I did that, and you know, th- these are regrets that I had." You know, they, they, they tend to look backwards and take stock, you know, as to what they think their life is like. Okay. And and. I, I'm not really that interested in, you know, keep moving forward and taking stock. Yeah, you know, your your, uh, you know, your 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 life is always always ahead of you. You know, no matter where you are. What's the next new country you're going to visit? Sheesh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. All right, I don't know. I've got uh, I've got to go to Mexico in a couple of weeks. Um, and then I go to Belgium the end of April, and I go to China in May. So those are my next, my next three t- trips, all all uh, all countries that I've been before. But but um, the country that I'm kind of into right now, to be honest with a city is Mexico City. Fantastic! This is my going to be my fourth time I'm there. You know, everyone says it's dangerous. You'll get killed down there. Cartels will grab you. It, nothing further can be from the truth, you know. I mean, I'm always in Palermo or, or Roma, but food is fantastic. People are lovely. They're friendly. They're beautiful. The culture is great. The art scene, fantastic. And it's three and a half hours away, and no Americans go to Mexico City. A run down there. I mean, it is, 
It's fantastic. Yeah, that's crazy. I have a uh, one of my one of my uh, theater company members is from there, and I've we've been threatening to go, but we haven't go. done it. Don't threaten, just go. It's great. It. You'll love it. Uh, where can people find you on the web? www.bobointriguingobjects with an s dot com. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Ah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, or you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. It's your monthly dose of art curated by Pinecone Turkey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening.